Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Sound. I'll turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the death. Nen konnichiwa, and welcome to the Kaiju Cast, episode 109 of the Kaiju Cast, a bi-monthly podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is the first episode of May 2014, and inside this episode, we are speaking with author and Godzilla historian August Ragoni about his own history with Kaiju and Tokusatsu, uh, his upcoming second edition of Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters, the book he wrote. Uh, what else? We are going to be talking about his work with the Shout Factory and with Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. All that cool stuff coming up in just a couple of minutes. Um, but because we just posted an episode, like literally a few days ago, there will not be a lot of news. Thank goodness for this particular episode. But fret not, this interview really pushes us well into the hour. So I'm not jipping you on any sort of like content. Uh, we are going to play just one track here, and then we'll play another one at the end of the episode as well. But the one we're going to play right now is going to be Battle in Outer Space Suite by Akira Ifukube, and that is from the Voyage to Dream Quest CD. And then we'll just get right into the interview from there, which we will follow with uh, the news and catastrophic events. So, let's get going on that, shall we?
joining me via the internet is a good friend of mine that I've known for, oh my God, dude, it's going on 15 years now. At least. Yeah. Mr. August Ragoni has joined us. Thank you. for hey. Thanks for being on the Kaiju cast again. It's been, Thank you, man. been too long. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do this more often, man. Yeah. It would be, it would be good. I'll have to let you in on some, uh, some plans I have for the future and at a later date, but, um, Killer. for anyone who doesn't know August, August has been a proponent for kaiju films and Japanese cinema and tokusatsu and sentai shows uh, longer than I've known him. You know, his name is almost synonymous with Godzilla historian in a sense. Uh, August, do you have any like anything you could tell the listeners who don't know you already? Like, tell them about yourself. All right. Well, you know, it's like uh, I got into this stuff like a lot of people did, you know, as a kid and, you know, uh, you get hooked on it, you know, and uh, and uh, as a kid, we had a local horror show. Uh, a lot of people don't have these anymore. They're starting to come back. The Horror House Show. And that's where a local station has a package of horror, science fiction and fantasy films, and they would have a local host uh produce segments where they introduce the film and then they have cutaways and they interview guests and stuff like that. Well, our local guy was a guy named Bob Wilkins. Uh, he started in the sixties up in Sacramento and moved down to San Francisco in the early seventies. And, uh, Godzilla was going through this huge height of popularity in the United States uh, because of massive amounts of, you know, television showings all over the country. Local stations would get high ratings showing all the Kaiju Ega, all the different Japanese monster movies. And, um, you know, he was always saying things like, you know, be on the lookout for a new Godzilla film. If you have any information, send it into the station and I'll share it with the viewers on the air. And this guy was so popular. His, his, the ratings on his show would beat Saturday Night Live. Um, huge, huge. So, and there was obviously, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids who were really, uh, this guy was like our hero and he wasn't a guy in a cape like a lot of other horror hosts. You know, he just came out as himself. You know, he's bispeckled, smoked a cigar, uh, calm his nerves on the air, and uh, had a rocking chair in a haunted house set. And it was the coolest thing ever when you were a kid, you know. And uh, I, uh, he was doing a public appearance, and so I put all these Japanese things together. I had, I had a couple of magazines. I had some clippings from some Japanese magazines, a uh, copy of Famous Monsters Issue 114, the infamous 1975 uh, Japanese Monsters Issue. Um, and... I put all those together and I wrote some notes and uh, I handed it to him at the uh, this this uh, public appearance. Um, I was really scared to death because it was my first contact with the man in person. You know, here you go, Bob. I put some stuff together. I got to look for you. I didn't really sound like that, but. Uh... <laughs> I probably sounded a little more like Mina from Godzilla's Revenge. Wow. Yeah. Here's some stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so I handed him the package and, you know, I wrote a little note at the end of it saying, please send it back to me when you're done. And, you know, three, three or four months go by and probably something like that. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. I knew he would eventually send it back. Um, and I came home from school one day and my mom said, Bob Wilkins called. He wants you to call him back. And I nearly did a backflip, probably climbed the walls. And when I was through hooping and hollering and doing somersaults, I called Bob Wilkins at Channel 2. And he invited me to be a guest on the show to talk about Godzilla. Awesome. 
And uh, he said, hey, a new Godzilla movie is going to be coming out, so we're going to shoot this the week before the movie opens. <clears throat> so do you have anything on this movie called Godzilla vs. Megalon? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> you know, I brought my bull... I had some Bullmark Godzilla dolls at the time, or whatever. They, they call them Soft Bee or whatever. You know, the collectors now try to make them sound a lot more masculine. When I was a kid, I just called them monster dolls. I had these bull marks. I had like Gorosaurus and Gigan. And yes, I did have the, the purple stripe belly Gorosaurus, Bargon, and a couple of the other ones, Ghidra, and a couple of the other ones, Angulus. And I brought all those and I brought some stuff, you know, some other, I think that's all I brought really was that in a couple of fanzines or some other stuff. I came on the air, nervous as anything because this is the, you know, the biggest show on TV to us. And, uh, and talked about Godzilla, and apparently I, you know, uh, I made some kind of sense, probably more sense than I'm making right now, and probably being more articulate than I am now. Um, and Bob eventually invited me back, uh, and then I became sort of his Godzilla expert. I would be on the screen when I would be on his show, it would be Godzilla expert, or depending on if it was not a Godzilla film, it would be Japanese film expert. And that's how it started. And I was on Creature Features a few times. He also had this spinoff show he started doing uh, called Captain Cosmic, which is a Monday through Friday show where they showed episodes of Ultraman and Johnny Sacco. And I helped him get some of those shows for, the, for that program because he was like, I'm looking for more material. And I go, well, yeah, Ultraman is available from United Artists and Johnny Sacco is flying <laughs> robots available from uh, American International Pictures. And I just wrote all this stuff down for him. And then he uh, actually got him and he actually thanked me. Uh, for Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, which is, you know, 26 episode show, uh, he, he got from, uh, from AIP TV. And, uh, he thanked me because, uh, to license the show for five years for Channel 2 was only $2,500 at the time. Nice. <laughs> which, uh, he That's was awesome. like, man, thank you for that one. Um, because that saved him a lot of, for the context of the time, I mean, that was cheap. That's even, even cheaper now, but, uh, that's like a hundred dollars an episode to run it for five years or whatever. So, um, that's how I got started. And then Bob, uh, wanted me to start a Godzilla fan club at some point. And I, we said, sure, you know, and, uh, you know, I got together with a couple of my friends. This one guy named Dennis Lancaster did the art, uh, for it. And, uh, you know, we, we did that for a little while, sending out these certificates and, uh, we had a newsletter and a, and a, uh, and a member's card that you'd have to cut out the member's card. But Bob bankrolled all that stuff, and he kind of pushed me into this whole field in a way. The other thing that kind of propelled me is seeing, like, misinformation in, in other magazines, uh, you know, because I was always on the hunt. You know, sometimes I'm sure a lot of other fans have done the same thing when they were growing up in that time period where you'd get some science fiction or horror magazine or whatever, and there would be one photo of Godzilla in it, so you had to buy the whole magazine. Of course, yes, yes. You know, and then the photo caption would be completely wrong or something, or maybe there was a little write-up in there that had some facts wrong or something. And, uh, you know, I, you know, start write letter to the editor. Dear, dear sir, the photo that you have where it says <laughs> Megalon get thee gone is actually Gigad, not Megalon, but it is from the film Godzilla versus Megalon. You know, <laughs> yes, we are nerds. Yeah. Uh, so we did that. You know, Bob, Bob Wilkins pushed me into, uh, actually being in front of camera and, and, and speaking about this stuff and making public appearances and, uh, and really push me towards, you know, whatever the hell I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, whatever this happens to be, you know, it's a, that's one of the main people I, I have to thank. And I, I do thank him in, 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 uh, the new edition of my, uh, my book, AG Super I, Master of Monsters. 
Aside from meeting you in person, my introduction to you was reading your articles in, uh, in GFAN, but I'm sure your, your history went back further than GFAN. Uh, you were writing for Japanese Fantasy Film Journal, right? That's correct. Yeah. I started writing for, uh, Greg Shoemaker, the, uh, the publisher and editor who started it in 1968. I started writing for him, I think in the late seventies or early eighties. I might have started writing for him a little earlier just by being this kid who was like, had a typewriter and, uh, just wanted to keep write about this stuff and would send him stuff. And then we exchanged a lot of letters and became pen pals for a very long time. Um, eventually I started editing his news section. Uh, by going through the magazines that were available to me in, uh, in San Francisco from, uh, Japantown, having a Japantown here and two bookstores we we're lucky to have. And, uh, which Greg didn't have. Greg depended on the studios to send him materials. Oh, okay. And gotcha. that, that's gotcha. back in the day when the studio, you would actually write like Toho and they would send you a package full of stuff, you know, uh, and, and not a, a C and D. You know, not a cease and desist letter. Um, back in the day. Yes, back in the day. So yeah, I started writing for Greg and, uh, and then sort of, sort of the beginning of what became the A.G. Subaraya book. Um, Greg kind of stopped publishing, uh, Japanese fantasy film journal in the about 83 ish, uh, because the big thing, the big genre that was coming out of Japan was anime or what would be known as anime. And um, Greg had no way to really see it, so he had no way to evaluate it at the time. And uh, the live-action productions coming out of Japan, the tokusatsu, you know, special effects, monster movies, and things like that, those were becoming uh, kind of a thing of the past. Yeah, sort of drying up, yeah. Yeah, they were really expensive to produce. Um, and anime was a lot, anime was a lot cheaper to, to produce. And so Greg basically said, you know, I'm wrapping this up because, you know, there's I, the stuff that I like to write about isn't really being made anymore. Uh, I tried prodding him over a couple of years to kickstart, kickstart it because there was another growing interest again, you know, in the live action film. So I started just taking it upon myself. I wrote an extensive making of and episode guide to Ultra Q to try to relaunch JFFJ. Okay. And that kind of fell to the wayside at some point. And then we decided to try to just to kick it started again. And I started writing a complete history of Subaraya Productions, the company that AG Subaraya founded in uh, 1962, which went on to create Ultraman. So, uh, and tons of other stuff, obviously. So that started as like a good, that was going to be a multi-issue feature that mm-hmm. was going to chronicle the history of Subaraya Productions. And we even got so far as uh, preliminary layouts on that. And then Greg just totally lost interest in doing the zine again. And, uh, and that was that. Um, so um, it was around that time or just around the time that uh, the return of Godzilla or Godzilla 1985 came out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and for you fans out there who want to write in a, com- a correction letter to, to me or, or Kyle. Yes, I know it came out in 84. Um, but, uh, Bob Johnson, who, uh, is doing sci-fi Japan now, he and I wanted to do a fanzine and, uh, we were going to do our own thing that eventually became Markalite, uh, magazine in the early nineties. And that's a whole nother story in itself. So we kept writing even after the magazine folded and, uh, you know, and just kept, and that takes us into the nineties where, you know, Usenet is forever. You can <laughs> yeah. follow it from there. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's the very long winded version of that. Yeah. 
I don't know if the listeners actually know this. While I met you at G Fest in 1999, I started communicating with you a lot more and then eventually offered to host Henshin online so that then we started working together. August and I started working together a lot right. more, uh, after geez, like 2000. One yeah, it was like 2001. Like around yeah, there. I think so. Yeah, it was about 2000, maybe something like that. Because <clears throat> yeah. Bob Bob Johnson and I were doing um, we were doing Henshin online uh, as part of Monster Zero. Oh yeah, Monster Zero um, News. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We were doing that for a little while, and then we decided uh, since that site was being absorbed into another site, there was some you know that some company buys up a website and then yeah, we yeah, yeah. Up. <laughs> that stuff was happening, so we just decided to launch our own website and go went from there. Yes. How did you make the step from writing articles to just saying, I want to do a book? Well, you know, I always, ever since I was in, in as far back as I was in high school, you know, I, I, I drew a cover for a book I eventually wanted to write in high school. So I had that, one day, I'm going to write a book. Because, you know, in the 70s, um, especially the late 70s, especially after Star Wars came out, you know, there was a deluge of like science fiction books. Mm-hmm. And before that, there were, you know, there was the horror boom before Star Wars. So there were all these big books like, you know, horrors, horror movies, pictorial guide to horror movies. Or the, what was it the pictorial history of horror films by Dennis Gifford, which almost every kid who grew up in the seventies had that hardcover book. Um, big, beautiful book with lots of big photos. It's really great black and white and color. And, uh, so I wanted to, I imagined doing an all Japanese monster movie book um we still i still had interest in doing something like that uh how this thing came about was um sort of just a a, you know a chance a fate being at the right place at the right time uh i had actually written some materials uh for super i productions in the early 90s when they had uh the la office uh it was called ultracom it was run by kate mcmaines and uh, they had a newsletter, Ultra News. And so I uh, contributed to that. Um, and Subarai used some of my materials, including uh, the aforementioned uh, history of Subarai Productions. Hmm. Um, and at one point, uh, Subarai Productions was talking with Chronicle Books, who's my publisher, one of the biggest imprints in the world, based out of here in San Francisco. And they were doing a book uh, by Jimbo Matson called uh, So Crazy Japanese Toys. And it was they had all these beautiful photographs of, you know, all these character toys from d- different Japanese TV shows and movies and, you know, superheroes and monsters and whatnot. And Chronicle felt, the editors at Chronicle felt that they wanted to have a juxtaposition of, you know, the photos of the actual characters from the movie or TV show and then, you know, the toys. Mm-hmm. And they approached all the different Japanese companies. This is independently. Uh, I wasn't involved in this. I knew, I knew Jimbo when he was working on it. And, um, they, uh, uh started talking to Subarai Productions, which was the only company that said, yeah, we want to help you. The other, ja- the other Japanese studios were like, nah. Mm. So, um, that got Subarai talking to Chronicle and then they wanted to do a Subarai productions-based book. And the original idea was to do a book on the history of the Ultraman shows. And then there was some bad thing going on in the early 2000s between a, uh, a company in another Asian country and and Subaraya Productions over some contract. And I think people will know what I'm talking about. 
don't want to get into that. Yeah, we should um, move past. So, <laughs> yes. So they wanted to they they wanted to keep this thing going. Now this is about two thousand two thousand one, somewhere in there two thousand two probably. Okay. It's in the early two thousands, right there, and um, they wanted to keep this project alive. So they were trying to rethink what they wanted to do. Both Chronicle Books was really hot to do this, and Super Eye Productions was really hot to do this. And then it was sometime in uh, 2005 that uh, Super Eye Productions said, okay, we figured it out. We're going to do a book on A.G. Super Eye, and uh, we want you to write it. Let's get going on this. So, of course, before this happened, when when uh, we were talking about the Ultraman book initially, um, Super Eye recommended myself and Bob Johnson um, and uh, – they wanted to see a 30-page sample of uh, Chronicle did to see if, you know, I wasn't just drawing in crayons or something. Right, know? So, right. <laughs> so I sent them 30 pages of the Subaraya history, the Subaraya Productions history. And they said, yeah, okay, you guys are, you, got, you know, you're good. Okay, fine, you know, let's do it. Um, of course, then I got stalled by all this stuff with this nebulous company, this other co- Asian company. Mm-hmm. Um. So it was on hold for a while, like I said, going back to 2000, going forward back to 2005. Uh, you know, they said, okay, well, um, we want you to write it. Um, a history of, uh, a biography on A.G. Subaraya. Go. You have nine months. That's, uh, so, that's a tall order, right? Yeah, it's a bit of a tall order because, you know, most people have the impression of, you know, uh, somebody who's, uh, who's a writer who puts out a book. Um, sits there and slaves away on some manuscript that they're very passionate about and they've worked on for years. And then they're shopping around all these different publishers who give them, you know, rejection slips. And then finally somebody goes, oh, yes, you know, they have an epiphany. You're awesome. Let's do this book. That sounds fantastic. You know, the project actually started independently and we were recommended, you know, and then eventually um, it was all put in my hands. Um and uh, just had that nine months. It would have been awesome to have, you know, a year of, of uh, or a little more time to do uh, a little more research. Um, but I definitely had enough stuff on Subaraya in my head and in the library books that I have. So um, on him. And it, it's kind of like kind of a full circle thing in a way, too, because and uh, I think it was, uh, do you know, Kip Dotto. Remember anybody remember Kip Dotto out there in Radio Land? <laughs> I'm not going to uh, wait for the answer from the listeners, but I, I yeah, do okay. not know Kip. Yeah, we are taking phone calls. <laughs> no, you're on the phone. Look call. at that. The switchboard is lighting up lighting like a Christmas up. tree. Um, but this guy, Kip Dotto, is another fan who went and interviewed a bunch of people and, you know, is collecting films and all that. He, uh, uh, at Sa- we were, we were together at San Diego Comic Con 2001 when Hiroko Sakurai, who played, uh, Fuji, mm-hmm. the female science patrol agent Ultraman, when she was appearing there as a guest and uh you know we were still talking about doing this book the ultraman book at the time and uh we were interviewing Kuroko for that and uh and Kip said you know you should do a book you should do a book you should do the american version of the films of A.G. Subaraya which was a very famous and at one time very extremely expensive book that was published uh after his death as a commemorative in 1970 Oh, okay. That his family put together and was published by Shogakukan. Um, and that was re-released uh, on his centenary in 2001. And so we all had copies of it and at that point because it used to be just 
it was like one of those books that would be like, you know, $500 to try to get a copy of it. Like, you know, any time before that, it was like just ridiculous. Um, and Kip said, you should do, you know, the films of A.G. Subaraya as a book, you know, an English version. And that's eventually sort of what this book became. So that was kind of a, you know, a weird foreshadowing of that or ironic <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, you know, I had all this, in, you know, the full circle part two is also that, um, when I first started being a fan as a kid and scanning the TV guides, which was another, you know, social activity that is common amongst people of my generation and uh, maybe people who were growing up in the 90s, too, where you get TV guide, which, you know, this, now kids are going to say, what's that? You know, but <laughs> the TV guide would come out every week and we would run to the store, the liquor store, the grocery store, we close the store that sold TV guide. And you get the TV guide and you start going through all the pages looking if any Japanese sci-fi or monster movies were playing. Yeah. And you'd circle it and make sure you watched it, you know. Tell all your friends, you know. <laughs> and I remember getting one, uh, it was, I don't remember if it was a TV guide or it was the Sunday paper TV log, which Sunday papers used to have a supplement inside that would told you what all the TV shows in the upcoming week were, movies on TV and whatever was the programming locally. And one of them was uh, Attack of the Mushroom People. And this must have been like, I must have been about, I don't know, like 10 years old. And this name popped out because they would usually have sometimes, you know, they'd list a couple of the actors' names. Right. And usually right. they were mangled, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it said the Attack of the Mushroom People. I don't remember what the description of the film was. It was probably one sentence. But then it said special effects by A.G. Subaraya. And that name was the first name that stuck in my head associated with these films, you know, and um, and then there was an issue of famous monsters uh, it was, I think, one. Uh, God, the brain doesn't work like it used to, but it was it was like, you know, it was like, I don't know, it was a couple issues before that the big famous Japanese monsters issue 115. So it was something like maybe 112 or 113. And they had, they reprinted an article from the 60s on A.G. Subaraya. Oh, okay. And it was a bunch of behind-the-scenes photos. And um, I just reread that article and stared at the photos because there were behind-the-scenes photos from the Mysterians and King Kong versus Godzilla and Godzilla Raids again and Mothra. And um, I would just stare at these. These were the first time I saw behind-the-scenes photos from these movies. And... Um, and that really stuck in my head, too, you know, and that also kind of, again, that's another part of that full circle where the first person that the first uh, personnel who worked on any of those movies, besides the actors you'd see on screen, but the first behind the scenes person that I recognized their name and, and what they did was Subaraya. Cool, man. Yeah. I mean, I think basically for me, uh, I as someone who's done a, a mild amount of research before like started the podcast, you know, uh, right. I, the, the Subaraya name just gets tossed around a lot and, and people everywhere revere him. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about like average Joe people, obviously, but you know, I've heard so many people refer to, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg as, uh, as praising the Japanese special effects. And, uh, I'm pretty sure I even heard like AJ Subaraya's name mentioned in some interviews by them. And so it's, mm -hmm. it was, I actually, you know, a lot of people, not a lot, but it's, several people have told me, oh, you should write a book. 
which I will probably never do. But the uh, uh, oh, you come know, on, man. I would not if I was going to write a book. I would I would have it be just about like the films and stuff. And so I think it's really cool that you wrote about the man behind it because I find his history fascinating. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating how you know he had. Most people know him as you know the special effects guy. You know, when he did the first Godzilla film, he was already uh, 53 years old at that point. And so where did this guy come from? You know, what did he do before that? You know, and, um, you know, the guy started as, you know, he did, he had a lot of, you can, you can pick up a copy of the book and find out yourself. But, um, you know, he started in the film industry when he was like 18, 18 years old as a camera operator what they call our cameraman, what they now call a cinematographer for the fancy cities out there. Um, and, uh, you know, he had a very prolific career as a very well-known and well-respected cinematographer. And he even directed a feature film uh, before he started really getting into special effects. Hmm. And he had the epiphany for him was seeing King Kong in Japan uh, in the fall of 1933. Uh, in Japan, and um, he became fascinated with that movie. And then uh, the other, the other one that he noted was uh, uh, the Universal uh, production of The Invisible Man, the James Whale mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. version. And both of those films totally fascinated him, and so he started getting more into into that. But as a cinematographer, he was always doing effects, you know. Uh, smoke effects and, 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 and this, and he would drive some of the people he worked with, some of the directors, he drove nuts who just said, set up the camera and just shoot the damn action. Right. <laughs> and he would go, no, I want the lighting to come in this way. And then I want to have put, uh, you know, have a smoke pot going and, and blow some smoke in there. So the, the light, you know, the smoke catches the light and it's going to make this scene look really great, you know? And, uh, and he did end up being, being like, uh, a, uh, the the num the go to uh, cinematographer uh, for one of Japan's first big movie stars, uh, Kazuo Hasegawa, uh, who is uh, still acting up until you know uh, his later his later years, and in fact I think a film that starred him produced by Dae, which was called Gate of Hell, which is uh, you know world famous movie was one of the was the first. I believe, don't quote me on this, <laughs> but um, I believe that was the first uh, uh, Japanese film to uh, win an, uh, an Academy Award for foreign, for foreign film. Gotcha. And gotcha. so that's, uh, you know, that's sort of like another, you know, six degrees of separation from Tsuburaya. But, you know, the, the, uh, you know, so he was doing all that stuff, saw King Kong, wanted to figure out how to do it, how they did that stuff. And even if you look at materials when King Kong came out uh, in the States, you know, there was, I think somebody put out a book of how they did those things in King Kong, like a popular mechanics type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of it's filled with a bunch of nonsense because, you know, the special effects guys in Hollywood at that time uh, were, also, <laughs> were also very secretive, like magicians, about how they did their tricks. Um, you know, back when they call all that stuff trick photography. And, um, and so you really couldn't get any hardcore information on how these things were done. So Subaraya was able, because of his status as a well-known, top-notch cinematographer, you know, he was able to get his hands on a print of King Kong for his own and to, uh, to, uh, to study it frame by frame in a movieola 
and and try to figure out how they did certain shots. And so, you know, he had to basically deconstruct the film in a way, you know. And so that pushed him into the direction, of course, then you get into, you know, the, the incursion into China with uh, the Japanese imperial government. And then, you know, he was uh, starting to do more special effects at that time and uh, got into miniature work. But then when they started doing these propaganda movies and he was like the go-to guy for those because, you know, he could provide all the special effects for those films, too. Right, right. All the all the airplanes and and uh, battle battleships. Yeah, 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 all that stuff. And in fact, there was that the one film uh, that came out in 1942, The War at Sea from Hawaii and Malaya, which was produced upon <laughs> the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. And that was like the big box office hit of 42 in Japan. And Tsuburaya did a complete recreation of Pearl Harbor on the back lot of Toho. Uh, Battleship Row, the whole nine yards, and they blew it all to hell. And uh, a lot, some of that footage ended up in, uh, in documentaries after the war, even in the United States and other countries. Because it was, it was that good. Oh, <laughs> that's wild. Because I had heard, I heard the story obviously about, uh, about the the U.S. Armed Forces thinking it was real footage. All right, so, you know, we were trying to find some kind of actual concrete citation or a Japanese source that said that or some other source in an English language uh, uh, materials that we, we really couldn't find anything in the short, compressed amount of time we had to write this book and get it out. So uh, we kind of alluded to it in one of the photo captions uh, in the first edition of the book, and I wasn't really comfortable with that. So, um, you know, we were, I tried to correct that when it was going out. We get, there's this thing called galley proofs when you're doing a book, and they send you the layouts just before it goes to press so you can make any last minute changes. And I think we're going to modify that, and it didn't, it didn't get in. So, uh, with the second edition of the book, we, we got that, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, the second edition that's coming out uh, mm-hmm. on May 6th. So we just like decided to, you know, to drop it. I talked to my editor, Steve Marcus, and I said, hey, well, you know, he kind of wanted to keep it in there because it is sort of like, you know, a legend or we could have said that. But, you know, I decided to, you know, just say that the footage ended up being used in documentaries because it was that good, you know. So um, we just kind of went with that. If, if that story, if some something comes out in the future on that, I'd like to you know, I would still love to find it, you know, if that's actually, you know, true or not, that somebody was fooled by the movie. But certainly what happened when uh, MacArthur installed the GHQ or general headquarters in Japan during the occupation uh, after the war, uh, which went in from the end of the war until 1952, um, Subaraya was uh, brought in and questioned <laughs> and blacklisted uh, from working in the Japanese film industry. Um because they uh, said that to have those materials to be able to make such a recreation of uh, a realistic creation of Pearl Harbor, uh, he must have been part of a spy ring mm-hmm. that was involved. You know, when actually, you know, they, you know, the Japanese imperial government said, you, Subaraya, make this movie. Here's all the photos and blueprints we have. Make this movie, you know, or we shoot you, you know, whatever, you know. I mean, they basically, you couldn't say no. Right, right. You know. So, uh, you know, he made that film, but he was blacklisted. And so, uh, but since he had such good friends, uh, you know, at Toho, he was at Toho at the time, um, that, uh, you know, he would sneak in to the studio <laughs> and worked without credit. Then they, they'd pay him, but, you know, he, you know, he also had to keep a low profile. And those were during his lean years. 
uh, there until the occupation lifted in 52. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's back at Toho, you know, full time and, you know, can use his own name and whatnot. So, you know, he was a, he was a pacifist. He didn't really agree with the war, you know, and, um, and, uh, but, you know, there's not, there's not much you can do when you work for a, a totalitarian government who, who, who tells you, you make this film or we shoot this dog, you know? Yeah. So how did he move into, uh, getting his own production studio made? I mean, that's a, I would think that's a pretty big jump from just being not, and I don't want to belittle it, but, you know, being the special effects director at a major studio. Uh, to saying, I want to do this on my own and right. do everything. Well, you know, the aforementioned, you know, the aforementioned, uh, lean years he had, you know, he and, uh, his eldest son, Hajime, uh, formed a company out of their own house, a little like basically like a cottage film studio, um, called Subaraya Special Effects Laboratory. And, um, what they did is they farmed it out to other people, you know, uh, they did farmed out work. So somebody would contact them and they were, they would do, you know, uh, minimal, uh, small jobs. Right. Um, and so he had been doing that, but he wanted to, to make it a bigger company, a more solid company. And there's been some, you know, there's, there's a big gap when, you know, you have a language barrier from Japanese to English where some stories that are more hyperbolic than fact kind of seep into the, you know, uh, into the general knowledge. Right. And, 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 and they're not really easily refuted because not many people can speak or read Japanese or there, there aren't any Japanese speakers that are refuting what's in English language materials. Um, but for, you know, a few years, uh, when people would talk about Subaraya Productions being formed in 62, that, um, a lot of people said Toho had a grudge against Subaraya for starting that company as a rival company. When the fact of the matter is, and it's in the book, that Toho was actually the financier of Subaraya Productions. And, uh, in fact, one of their biggest producers, who a very close friend of Subaraya's, uh, Sananzumi Fujimoto, he was, uh, one, uh, one of the board of, he was one of the men on the board of the directors of Subaraya Productions when it started. And several other Toho people were also on the board of the directors. So that was all done in concert with, uh, with Subaraya Productions, which caused some problems like after Subaraya's death when, uh, Toho tried to seize the company, which I couldn't write about in my book because we didn't want, Subaraya Productions didn't want anything controversial in the book. Um, uh, and you know, that, you know, opening up old wounds and stuff like that. And it's not really discussed. It wasn't ha- or hadn't been discussed really openly mm-hmm. in even Japanese books. Or, or, uh, or, or textual materials on, on Subarai productions or, or Subarai's history. But, you know, certainly now with the internet, a lot of Japanese fans kind of a little more openly talk about right, those right. things. So, uh, you know, uh, but Toho was a, you know, a, a major investor, uh, in, in that, in, in getting Subarai productions off the ground. So how has your book been well received in Japan? Um, yes. You know, uh, for those who, those who can read English, you know, <laughs> it yeah. has. And, uh, you know, it's been sold openly, uh, at, uh, a lot of, uh, Subaraya Productions, uh, events, you know, where they do like, a you know, an Ultraman exhibit or, you know, uh, some celebration of Subaraya over the last few years. Um, people have sent me pictures from Japan of my book being sold next to, uh, Japanese books on Subaraya. Yeah. Which is very flattering. 
Well, I mean, yeah. I, I would also say even like not just for English readers, like this book has a ton of photos in it and they're all like super, super large, you know, which is actually, uh, for the listeners, I've been buying a lot of Japanese books recently and that is not something you get in a lot of Japanese books. You get a lot of small pictures and a lot of text. Yeah, a lot over of photos. a lot of text, yeah. a lot of a lot of po- what I like to call the postage stamp size photo. Yeah, yeah. You know, you go like, "That's an awesome picture." Too bad it's so tiny. It's one inch yeah. by one and a half inches. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you know there are big photo books too. But you know it's like, uh, um, yeah, we were very very lucky um, because uh, you know this was. Uh, you know, a cooperation between Subarai Productions and the Subarai family and, um, and Chronicle Books. But in 2001, on, on Subarai's centenary, I was in Tokyo at the Fantastic, uh, the Tokyo Fantastic Film Festival, and they had a commencement for Subarai's centenary. Uh, and they announced that they were forming a, uh, a cooperative called the AG Project. And that was going to be all these different various companies that Subaraya had worked for, different film companies over the years. Um, so of course, Toho, Subaraya Productions, uh, a lot of representatives were there. And it was basically them all agreeing to work together to celebrate uh, unconditionally, uh, assist each other in helping to celebrate the uh, centenary. Um, and so through the auspices of the AG project is how this book was pulled together and, and why we were allowed, uh, to use so many, uh, Toho photos where so many authors, uh, before us since the nineties uh, were barred from using photos, mm-hmm. uh, either, um, Toho, uh, just nixing, uh, s- the inclusion of certain photos or, uh, asking for, you know, uh, very high, uh, licensing fees. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard about that too. Yeah. Yeah. So Toho basically couldn't say no, um, to what we wanted to do. And, uh, many of the photos, uh, I would say the lion's share of the photos in the book came from, um, uh, probably the number one, uh, historian and archivist, uh, of this stuff. Uh, you know, not just Subaraya, but just everything in general as far as to- Japanese fantasy films. And television shows, uh, Hiroshi Takeuchi, who passed away, uh, recently, uh, and you'd see his name on, you know, most of the books that came out, the big, all the big hardcover Toho books, mm-hmm. uh, things like that would bear his name. And he actually, uh, as a teenager, uh, because he was a kaiju expert himself as a young man, um, Subaraya hired him, uh, to work for Subaraya Productions to help, uh, 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 work with uh, the media to keep all the things straight, like the monsters' names and things like that straight, and uh, other factual information. He's been writing, he had been writing since he was a teenager, putting together monster dictionaries, like back in the 70s, like the early 70s, and all the way up till, you know, his death, he was putting, uh, one of his last books was, uh, I believe it was a book on uh, uh, Subaraya's uh, interviews, I believe, was mm. one of the last books he worked on. Um we got a line share from that and other private collectors, uh, including myself and Ed Gajicheski and, and, uh, Bob Johnson and some of the filmmakers like Yasuyuki Inoue, Akinori T- uh, Takagi, uh, some of the special effects guys that worked for Subaraya. So we were very, very fortunate to be able to get this wealth of material to use, uh, and, and be able to publish it all. Well, it's a gorgeous book, man. And I, I feel very lucky that 
because I did not buy the book when it came out, which was in 2007. Damn you. Yeah. Damn but, but I feel very lucky because, uh, I want to say like right when people were, uh, their, the, the stores sort of like collections of this book were, of your book were drying up. I was able to find one at a reasonable price and, uh, and I picked it up and then like almost immediately after that just went, the price went through the roof and I was very shocked at some of the price tags I've seen on eBay for, oh, yeah. for the book. Uh, so. And Amazon think, even for the hardcover. Yeah. Yeah. Edition is like before we announced the, uh, the second edition, you know, uh, some of the prices for a new copy were, you know, over $300. Yeah. They've come down quite a bit, but, um, still, it's still like, you know, you can't touch one for, you know, under, under 160 bucks or something like that. And the used copies, you know, are still in the hundreds. Yeah. You know, I think, like, think used copies are like 200 and above and used copies are going for about a hundred, a buck 50, you know, 150 bucks, somewhere in there. So it's, it's kind of crazy, but I never really expected people to kind of react, you know, uh, to this book in the way that they did. Um, and just the, just the amazing interviews, I think, I mean, uh, reviews, I should say that, that happened. And, you know, you would expect, you know, doing something like this, that, you know, you'd want to get a really good review in something like G fan or, or Fangoria or something or rumor, which also gave us a great review. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the reviews that probably one of the reviews that I'm proudest of is the fact that it was reviewed by time magazine. Um, very, very, very favorable review and not just a little short review either. You know, it was, that was really kind of mind blowing. Cool. And that was, uh, uh, really just, you know, pretty amazing to have that happen. And the one that I really love too is the library journal, which people are going to go, what library? Who, what the library journal is the book for obviously for all libraries, librarians, and uh, that's both, you know, public libraries, private libraries, and college and university libraries. And it recommended the book for not only um, all libraries, uh, but also for uh, university and colleges with uh, film studies or Asian and Asian film studies. So that really sold a ton of copies that way. And I've also actually had people uh, tell me that they've written their, their college papers based on my book. Um, in fact, I was having, uh, yes, I'm an Apple person. I had, I had problems with, with my, with my Apple, with my desktop. So I took it to, you know, uh, I took it to one of the Mac stores and I, you know, went into there to the Apple store and went into, uh, to the, to the genius bar Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this kid was helping me, you know, he's in his early twenties. Right. And he, and he, I give him my name and, and he goes, did you write a book on A.G. Subaraya? Nice. <laughs> and I went, uh, yeah, he's Godzilla nerd, another Godzilla nerd. And he wrote a, his college paper on my book. Cool, man. And got great grades for it. So I'm like, at least that's something good. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome. And I, I that's mean, kinda, that's, that's crazy. That's the kind of crazy thing that you really don't expect to happen, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I didn't really expect that the book would sell out so fast either. You know, we didn't have anything end up on, you know, red tag, remainder tables or cutouts. You know, they were just gone. They were just gone. In fact, you know, I only have two copies myself. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and the response, even, you know, the price tag on that thing, and this was before the market crash in 2008, nine, luckily, 
you know, was the fact that, you know, uh, it was a $40, you know, hardcover copy table book mm-hmm. and just people just ate that thing up. Yeah. You know, so that was pretty amazing. And then the new edition is, uh, you know, uh, I think it's list is uh, twenty nine ninety five. So, um, and it's exactly a lot of people think when it goes to paperback, it's just going to be like this, you know, kind of pulp paper and, you know, the color, there's going to be no color in it or anything. It's the exact same paper and the exact same printing and everything. Um, the exact same paper type. The only difference physically is that it is a, it is not a hardcover. Yeah, I've so. got a copy in my hot little hands right here, and I can, hey, hey, I can absolutely you. attest to the fact that this is just as gorgeous as the hardback cover. It just doesn't have a hardback. Yeah, and you know, some people, you know, some people out there who, you know, have to collect every single VHS uh, version of, of Godzilla vs. Gigan. <laughs> I don't uh, know anything about that. <laughs> Because <laughs> well, they they might have a you know an alternate title card or something yeah. at the beginning of the film. You know, people ask me, you know, uh, so what's different about this one? You know, should I? Is there is there a good enough reason to buy another copy of it? And you know, the first answer should be uh, duh, but uh, <laughs> but the the, no, the the real reason is that you know uh, I did mention before the galley proofs and and things that we tried to correct that were. You know, either, uh, you know, sometimes intern mistakes happen when you work on a, on a, on a professional book, you know, uh, there are a lot of hands involved. So oh, sometimes, yeah. you know, you, uh, there's, there's something that you didn't like or the photo caption isn't correct, you know, um, or inconsistency with the titles from the text and the captions, you know, uh, for a title of a film or, you know, a name is misspelled, you know, especially when you're dealing with, you know, Japanese names, there's a lot of mistakes that can be made. They have to be double checked, triple checked, and quadruple checked and cross referenced. So there were little things that you know that were cropped up, and um, so we corrected all that. A couple tweaks that didn't get through the first time. Other things that I I noticed, uh, you know, after that, and then also um, I was at G Fest. I want to say I don't know if it was if it was two thousand eight or two thousand nine, but um, there was one fan who was there who uh, loved my book but said. I just want to know why you didn't write about Dogar the Space Monster. Hmm. Yes. And I went, uh, no, I did. I, I, I remember writing about it. In fact, I can remember where I was sitting you know, <laughs> and what I was doing that day when I wrote that because I, you know, I wrote like two paragraphs on the film and, and, and uh, you know, had some little tidbits about the film that hadn't really been widely written about before. Uh-huh. I mean, that film hasn't been widely written about, period. Um, and... So uh I flipped the book, you know, to this where it should be, and it wasn't there. Oh man. <laughs> so it somehow fell into the cracks, and when we were doing galley proofs and your your proofreading, you know, I didn't notice it was missing. Oh, and yeah. I to, just to double check, I went through my original manuscript and it there it was, you know. And um so we reinstated that for this new edition of the book too. So that's very we couldn't cool. do any major rewriting of the book. There were other stories I wanted to, to add, and we talked early on about, you know, some really great other antidotes about Subaraya, some interesting stories about how uh, Hollywood was courting Subaraya, and there were companies that wanted to do uh, their own uh, cooperations with him to, 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 uh, to create a, 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 you know, a bigger effects house. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, you know, uh, and some of the characters involved, 
you know, uh, some Hollywood figures and stuff like that would, would have been included. We couldn't, we couldn't squeeze it in because we'd have to redo all the layouts and everything. And that the time wouldn't allow us to do that. The window of opportunity we had, uh, renegotiating, uh, the second edition with, uh, Subaraya and then also, um, uh, the window that we had to get this book out in time in sync with, uh, the Gareth Edwards film. So, you know, there, there's always a, a future, you know, Subaraya book of some kind where all that information can be that I have that can be put into another place at some point. And some people have asked me, like, now you need to write when the first edition came out, you know, why don't you do a companion piece about how the movies were made? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, in depth detail on each film and not talk about like, you know, all the other stuff, like, you know, his personal life, but unless it impacted a particular film. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something to consider, but, you know, I, I, I've been so jammed up after that, that book came out. I got so many, I got, I got so many jobs out of that. It was kind of nuts. So, you know, the first thing I wanted to do was start writing another book. And then I started getting, you know, offers to, uh, you know, write liner notes for DVDs and do special features and then, you know, magazine uh, articles and things like that. So that I've been trying to get another book out and I'm working in my spare time in between these other commission jobs to, to, you know, move forward in that direction. But it, uh, that Subaraya book, uh, Saka companion book is a little further off. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man, that you got a lot of work from it. You said you were writing, uh, DVD liner notes and I know right. that you were working with the shout factory. So that right. sounds like a great segue into talking about, uh, how you got involved with shout factory. Yeah. Well, um, I had, uh, I've been approached, but I don't know how that exactly, it all, it all happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I think it was, uh, it was Cliff McMillan, who is one of the main guys there at Shout, the director of acquisitions, who's also doing, you know, his main thing is the Scream Factory label, you know, doing, doing all those amazing Blu-rays of things like, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the Incredible Melting Man and, you know, and uh, the fog and you know the great carpenter movies and and all the other 80s horror films that they're putting out um and cliff was putting you know started ventura uh uh distribute what was it ventura was the name of the label um and he was putting out all these sunny chiba movies in the early 2000s oh okay and i don't know if you remember that and he also got a, the rights to a couple tv shows and 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 was you know trying to put a bunch of stuff out and uh and then he was hired by a Navari corporation, uh, who had a bunch of sub labels and one of them is Mill Creek and they formed BCI Eclipse. And Cliff said, Hey, I'm going to start licensing a bunch of Japanese stuff. Um, do you want to work on them? And I said, yeah. And one of the first things I did with him was, uh, he was putting out, uh, anybody out there know who Sonny Chiba is? So Sonny Chiba yeah. or Shinichi Chiba, you know, from the, more in the more American pop culture reference, you know, played Hattori Hanzo in the, in the Kill Bill movies for Tarantino, specifically the first one. But, um, you know, he had done all these action movies, uh, and, um, he did, he did, they did a spinoff with one of his protégés, Etsuko Shomi, and, uh, they were known as the Sister Street Fighter movies, and all those movies were imported to the United States during the big kung fu boom and the Bruce Lee craze. Yeah. And so, you know, all these Japanese karate films were released. And so he was doing a box set of her films, which had never been released properly here, you know, widescreen Japanese, you know, and all that. And, uh, 
I interviewed this guy, Ken Wallace, who was a martial artist who lived in Japan during that time and actually was in a few of the movies, a couple movies and uh, some TV shows. And I got to interview him and that was included in the liner notes booklet. Um, but before that, uh, I had done uh, some liner notes for uh, something weird video. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The late Mike uh, Ranny's label. And um, they were doing the Starman films, the super giant movies, the, you know, Tack from Space and Evil Brain from Outer Space. And I gave them, you know, extensive story on uh, how those films came about and, and the differences between the American and the Japanese versions. And that was sort of like the first foray of that. And uh, I worked with Damon Foster of Oriental Cinema. Uh, Alan, uh, on Super Inframan, which came out through Image Entertainment as well. Oh, yeah. A liner note booklet for Super Inframan. Cool. Uh, which has a deep Japanese connection, too, because they hired Japanese special effects crew to do everything for the film. Um, and so, you know, Cliff uh, and I became uh, acquainted uh, while he was releasing all these Sunny Chiba films. Um, and then when he went over and created BCI and started acquiring stuff there, uh, including... Uh, uh, Super Robot Red Baron and uh, and Iron King and some other Japanese superhero shows from the 70s. And he also did, you know, Ultraman. You know, I started working with him on those. Um, and uh, you know, I ended up doing some of the subtitles and for Red Baron. I did all the subtitles for Red Baron, uh, subtitle editing, rather, because right. they had a rough translation of all the subtitles. And then I put them into, you know non-mangled English, you know. Gotcha, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And wrote, wrote a really great, we put together really great liner notes booklets for both of those. Um, and uh, the later releases that Mill Creek put out, the re- re-releases of those don't include the liner notes booklet. So um, some fans have written me and said, hey, I got this version, and I didn't get the one with the booklet, you know, and uh, I missed that one, and I'll, I'll email it to them. I have the PDFs for those, so I'll email them to people. Oh, right on. That's cool. You man. know, and then it's because I, I wrote those things, you know, not because, you know, I wanted to make money and just show off, you know, that I know a lot of stuff, you know, or could, you know, uh, research a lot of stuff or whatever. It was because I wanted people to have a better appreciation of what they were watching because they're watching these things cold without the context. So, you know, um, and I wanted to kind of cross-reference how all these things are connected. You know, they're all connected to Subaraya. They're all connected to Godzilla because the guys who did the special effects for those shows, the guys that created those shows all came from Subaraya Productions who all worked for Subaraya. Mm-hmm. The, some of the actors, the guest stars in some of the episodes, those are like Toho actors. You go, oh, that guy's in Destroy All Monsters and Frankenstein Conquers the World, and he's in this episode of Super Robot Red Baron. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, they're, they're, all those things are interconnected. And... You know, it was kind of out of my frustration in the 90s when Godzilla fandom was on the rise in, in North America and, uh, <clears throat> and people were just very, very resistant unless you were over a certain age where you grew up watching whatever Japanese show was on or a movie was on TV and you didn't care whether, well, you know, you preferred if it was a Godzilla movie, but if it was, you know, if it was the magic serpent, so be it. Right. You right. Know, yeah. If it was, you know, if it was, uh, you know, Gamera, you know, you didn't care as long as it was a Japanese monster movie. Um, and, but it got to a point where people were comp- starting to compartmentalize everything. And, you know, where, where Godzilla fans didn't want to even watch Gamera movies. Right. Cause it didn't have Godzilla in it. So that was like a big, you know, a big hurdle that eventually now everything's kind of turned into this where, you know, everybody's kind of interested in everything again in a way. 
at least they're more willing to try different things when Toho stopped making Godzilla movies. You know, people had to fall back on Ultraman now. Well, I yeah. started watching Ultraman. <laughs> and I know so there's a whole new generation of Ultraman fans have been, you know, created. Uh, yeah, because Toho, Toho stopped making Godzilla yeah, movies. I'm one of them, actually. Yeah, I I just finished watching Ultraman at the end of last year. Yeah. Yeah. Took me way too long to even get started on that, man. I'm <laughs> but you, slightly it, embarrassed about it. <laughs> yeah, well, Ultraman was my gateway drug into this whole thing, too. Yeah, you know, yeah that's what was, you were saying when we were when I was at the Fear Festival, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was really kind of crazy because, you know, Godzilla movies uh, would come out in theaters and they didn't, you know, I mean, when you're a little, little kid, when I'm talking, you're in grammar school, right? Um, a week seems like forever. So like a year is like you you can't you don't even have the concept of what a year is. Yeah, yeah. You know. So when a Toho monster movie or some monster movie actually got a theatrical release in the United States to a little kid, those were very infrequent. Right? Um you would catch some of them on TV. So I would see things like, you know, Godzilla versus the sea monster or, you know, son of Godzilla on TV. Um as like a four or five year old. And there were a lot of other monster movies on TV too. So, you know, you had creature from the black lagoon movies and whatever else. And then, you know, you had TV shows like the outer limits and whatnot to have your mind seduced, <laughs> polluted, <laughs> uh, corrupted Monday through Friday at five thirty or four in the afternoon or whatever, when Ultraman came on TV, when I was in probably kindergarten or first grade, um, made a huge impact because that was like Japanese monster movies coming into my house every day. And so Ultraman is what really, I was watching every monster movie and I was leaning towards the giant monsters anyway, dinosaurs and giant monsters. We're boys. That's what we do. Oh yeah. You know, but then when the, the daily dose of Ultraman is what really kind of pushed me towards that. And then as, my then then you know the the real big popularity of the syndicated Godzilla movies on TV started happening sort of right around that time and then also into the mid seventies. So then it became you know Ultraman kind of disappeared from my view uh, for a while and then everything was like Godzilla, Gamera, and you know Gappa, oh my, you know, like <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty crazy, but yeah. the, but Ultraman was the the thing that really you know kind of like uh uh is responsible for making me the broken my, man I am today. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I feel I feel at some point I must have shared this, but where I was living as a child, I don't remember Ultraman being on TV, but I definitely was watching Spectre-Man and Space Giants. Those right. were those were my uh those first were your gems, forays man. into Tokusatsu stuff, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they were your jam. My jam, <laughs> yes. You worked with Shout Factory for, right. f- sounds like you've been working with them for years now. Well, yeah, it's been, what, uh, you know, uh, Cliff, uh, when he moved over to Shout Factory, he said, I got some stuff in the works after BCI was closed down by Navari, and that was all because of the fact that some of the titles, I mean, they put out a lot of stuff. When he was at Navari <clears throat> and doing BCI, they were doing all the filmation stuff. You know, and they did, you know, all the filmation cartoons, you know, Black Star and all that stuff and whatever, you know, and whatever else they were doing. I mean, tr- didn't they do Transformers too? They did. A, yeah, they did. They did tons of great stuff. They hit this big peak. Ultraman was another big seller for them. 
And then um, he started kind of reaching out to these like weirder, like Japanese shows that um, had never been shown in the United States before, like Super Robot Red Baron and Iron King, uh, two you know early seventies Japanese superhero weekly TV shows. Mm-hmm. And you know the public reaction and awareness was a little slower, you know, on the uh, learning curve. So people weren't really buying it. And then, you know, we had the economy crash. And then uh, Navari Corporation just looked at the sales numbers going down on everything. They had already hit their peak um, with all the stuff they had put out. Um, and uh, so they just kind of, like said, we're folding that that branch. Right, right. And everything's going to just go get absorbed by Mill Creek. So uh, Cliff found himself sort of out of a job. He got picked up by Shout Factory. He contacted me probably, I want to say, sometime in 2009. And, and said, like, you know, hey, I'm working on some acquisitions for Japanese films for Shout. So I'll keep you posted. You, are you interested in working on them? And I said, yes, hell yes, I am. What do you think? I'm stupid. <laughs> so, you know, I said, work with you. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, Cliff's a great guy, man. And he's, you know, he's got a really good sense of putting out, you know, really cool stuff. So, you know, then he let me know eventually that, uh, he was, uh, acquiring the rights of the Gamera films. Uh, the original Showa 1965 through 1980 films and, uh, said, are you still interested? And I go, yes, I am. Thank you very much. And, uh, they kind of went from there. For the listeners, I was telling August right before we started recording that I finally have like all of the Gamera films from, uh, from Shout Factory and they're really well done. I mean, the, the production value, not just on the DVDs, but the packaging as well is just very nice. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, we had a, uh, a hard time because of the economic downturn also kind of affected, you know, the gamma releases um, because uh, Cliff's original idea was to put all the films out as individual releases at a budget price. Uh, and uh, so we were working. That's how we started working. I mean, once we got the ball rolling, that's how it was, it was going to happen. And, uh, and that's why the first two releases are, you know, single releases. Right, right. And, uh, so there was going to be a booklet in every one. And I, you know, I commissioned, uh, Julian Yates, uh, to do the monster anatomies, mm-hmm. you know, based on, based on, uh, an amalgam of, uh, different Japanese, uh, uh, kids, kids magazine and the monster anatomies from the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, sort of his revisioning, channeling all that to his sensibilities and, uh, you know, uh, that was a lot of fun and we were doing, going to do audio commentaries for every single film. And booklets, you know, in each, in each package. And then, uh, the, you know, the voice came from on down high, you know, that, uh, they, uh, were going to cut back on all of that. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, decided to put the rest of the releases as, uh, double features, mm-hmm. you know, and in doing the double features, you know, we had, we had a discussion about, um, you know, what was the most important thing? The most important thing, we're, we're trying to locate, you know, the English audio tracks. We had a hell of a time trying to get a decent, you know, widescreen oh, element right. yeah, yeah, the for source, Gam- yeah. the original Gamera from 65, Gamera the Invincible, uh, the 68 US release. And, um, you know, that just wasn't happening. We kept, we kept it up. We kept it up almost to the 11th hour trying to find a way to do it. And either people were being very uncooperative or, um, are just blocking us from doing it or right. blocking cliff from doing it rather. And then, um, and, uh, you know, there was even the discussion of just, you know, including a 16 millimeter transfer of a television print, which would, would have been pan and scan. And, uh, I kind of voted against that just because, 
if people were going to complain, <laughs> they were also going to complain about that. Oh, yeah, if for it was, sure. If it yeah. was included or not included, they would still complain. So we decided if we couldn't get a widescreen version, then we would just forego it entirely. And then, um, and since the film was, was dubbed by, you know, Sandy Frank, there was, uh, you know, some discussion of, of including that and, uh, and trying to find a proper print, uh, source material for that. And there were problems finding a, a, a really clean print. And I know a lot of fans can do their own, you know, reconstructions and, and, and make them sound fantastic. But, you know, that's, you know, a, a fan working on their own free time. And putting all their love and passion and energy into it. And when you're on a schedule in a real company working in real business terms with real street dates, right? It's a matter of time and money. And, uh, so, you know, that we couldn't do that. And then we, uh, provided them, we found what we could. We found several different sources for, uh, the Berugan, uh, English dub, uh, but that wasn't working because it wasn't properly matching up in the time that we had. There was some sort of magnetic problems on it, inter, you know, uh, sound problems that couldn't be quickly remedied. Sort of like what happened to the uh, Media Blasters uh, release of Destroy All Monsters, mm. where the AIP print has a lot of problems in the first, you know, five or ten minutes. And that's all because it... Oh, you know, they yeah. Just, okay, gotcha. Yeah, with the sound and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so they didn't want to... If the sound wasn't going to be decent on it, then they just didn't want to have it on there because, you know, you're going to get a lower grade from some of the bigger, you know, uh, home video review sites, Mm -hmm. you know, why couldn't they get a better, you know, why didn't they spend more time on it? You know, we didn't have a lot of time, you know, uh, the higher ups just wanted to crank, you know, not crank them out, but they want to get these out, get these out. We got the schedule. We got to meet, you know? So, but fortunately we were able to find better, uh, source prints, uh, for the audio for the rest of them. But when we did the, this, when they decided to do the double features, it was like, okay, so we're going to have, you know, the, uh, English dub that everybody grew up with and the Japanese audio and, um, the, the, uh, Sandy Frank, cause Sandy Frank waved, you know, he just signed a waiver like you could use him if you want. He didn't even have any masters. Sandy Frank, when their rights to Gamera elapsed, they destroyed all their masters. Yowza. Yeah, because, what you would have to do is either send them back to the company uh-huh. that owns the license, the, owns the property. So that means they would have to oh, okay, send gotcha. all of their masters to DIA, which is what? That costs a lot of money. So the, the usual dictum used to be you either return them or you destroy them. And he, here's, a, here's a side story. When, when movies or, or, or TV shows were sold to individual local stations back in the day, um, you would get an order from the company like if it was something like Ultraman on 16 millimeter or Ultraman, sometimes they would send in the, especially in the late seventies or early eighties, sometimes you would get some of the episodes in 16. Sometimes you would get them in, in, on videotape, on broadcast tape. Okay. Which is, you know, not like VHS. It's like a broadcast quality tape. Yeah. Like three quarter inch. Yes. Yeah. Like, so people who don't really understand that this is like, you know, we're talking, you know, they, a half inch. There used to be inch and a half inch is, uh, you know, the, uh, broadcast tape. But anyway, so the dictum from these companies, even this was in regards to films, once your rights elapse, you're supposed to send the films or the videotapes back to the company or destroy them. 
So when I was a kid, we used to dumpster dive in some at the back of some TV stations <laughs> nice. and find all kinds. We didn't really ever find anything good like TV shows. Yeah, I think yeah. some of the people that worked at those places would just like take them home. Oh, you know? I am sure they did, man. But but you know, you would find tons of commercials, you know, in sixteen millimeter, which was kind of cool. But anyway, so a lot of these people ordered them. You know, you have to destroy them. So I mean. Were you going to pack up all these like very heavy, big, you know, uh, broadcast masters and then send them back to Japan? No, you would just go, it's just throw them out in the trash. Yeah. Yeah. So those ended up getting trashed. And, you know, so Sandy Frank said, I don't have anything to give you, but if you find anything, you can use it, whatever. And, uh, Katakawa's, uh, uh, stance on that was like, you know, we own, we own Gamera. So you could use whatever you want. Go right ahead, which is, you know, contrary to, you know, to Toho's trepidation over using the old English dubs on, on their releases. Right, right. But, um, but anyway, so, you know, so we, we, we decided, you know, what's more important to have the two English dubs and the Japanese audio or one English dub and the Japanese audio and an audio commentary, you know, and I said, well, you know, uh, I don't think it's really important for everybody to hear me drone on about a movie at this point. I think the dubs are the most important thing. So, and that's sort of what the company decided also. Yeah. But Cliff and the creative team, it was uh, Brian Ward, uh, you know, and they, they decided, yeah, yeah, we're just going to have to drop the audio commentaries. And, you know, and I, I, I was already in agreement with them on that. So um, it would have been nice to have done those, the rest of those audio commentaries. But um, I think it was more important to have those dubs on there. Yeah. It's plus, it's a lot of work to do a commentary. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun, you know. Oh no, I mean, I'm some- not saying they're not fun for sure, but you know, there's. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm glad we got the ones that we do have. Yeah, and I was really flattered the fact that the, uh, you know, it was the first camera film was my first audio commentary, so you know, I went in with a lot of, you know, into the project, you know, with a lot of nerves, you know, and there was this thing where I, uh, I have a lot of friends from working in uh, my background and working in the music industry locally. I have a lot of friends in the music industry. So, um, you know, I was, a lot of people will record out of their home. It's easy to record a whole audio commentary at home. You know, it's not going to be a hundred percent perfect. Um, but, um, you know, I was able to, <laughs> I was able to go to actual recording studio where very famous bands have recorded and, and, and do this with a real engineer and, uh, which was kind of cool, you know, and, uh, we had the budget to do it. And, uh, and I got a really great discount on top of that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, at one point I had to change studios because one of the engineers couldn't do it. And so I had to switch. I had to go to a totally different studio to finish it up for the first film. But on, on Baragon, um, it was really very uh, flattering work, uh, you know, uh, getting nominated for a Rondo Award for Best Audio Commentary on that one. And I worked with uh, Jason Branny, my uh, cohort. Uh, and, uh, that was a lot of fun to do it with him because he was another guy that grew up, you know, watching these films on local TV and, uh, you know, was just as equally crazy about, you know, the Gamera films as the Godzilla films. So, you know, you don't want to bring in somebody who doesn't really like the movies, but, you know, and then you, but you can't also, you know, do a commentary with rose colored glasses at the same time. You have to have fun, but you also have to tell the person who's watching it why the movie's good and why they should, you know, why they should like it. Oh yeah, man. Totally. So let's actually uh, move into the Famous Monsters stuff. Sure. Well, first off, when did you find out that Famous Monsters was getting resurrected before? Oh, yeah. 
hand? Yeah, we or? yeah we had heard. Uh, you know, a lot of people had heard through uh, 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 things on this uh, forum called the Classic Horror Film Board, and um, I was down at a convention in two thousand and I want to say two thousand and eight, uh, and uh, they had a table uh, at this event, just saying the magazine's coming back. Right. Know? And uh, they also did a show up here. They did a WonderCon up here. Um, and uh, but I talked to him down in L.A. And uh, I had said, hey, you know, I, I really want to write, you know, uh, something for you uh, just because I think it would be fun. And it would be kind of like a, a life sort of a, a, a lifelong uh, wish or dream to to have, you know, at least one article in, in you know, an FM, you know. Oh, yeah. And write man. and write something, you know write something good about Godzilla, you know, in, in, or, or uh, the Japanese monster film, something that would appeal to the average, you know, reader or subscriber, you know, and Godzilla is the most popular and the most beloved. So that's what you would want to write about. So I pitched it to them and, you know, saw him at a couple of other shows and kept bugging him like, Hey, you know, if you still want me to write something about Godzilla, let me know. And, um, I think I, uh, they were doing a, a series of retro issues, um, that looked like they were published back in the day as kind of these side projects. It was, it was something that they did for a very short time. And, uh, that was one of the first things I wrote for him was, uh, was an article about, uh, destroy all monsters coming soon to a theater near you. Basically <laughs> nice. you had to write, you had to write it in the context of the time. Like you were picking up this magazine in in 1968 and it said, you know, AIP has acquired the rights to destroy all monsters, you know, um, and so that was like the first thing I did. And that's when, uh, they were going through a lot of, uh, uh, changing of hands with the, the, uh, the editors, you know, they had people coming in, there were people who weren't the right fit and, and, uh, you know, all, like all, especially in, in the climate today of like magazine publishing, which is almost zip, you know? Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it was, they had some growing pains and, you know, I saw them, I think, next when I was signing my book. So I did see, I did talk to them originally in 2008 down in L.A. And then 2009, they had a booth right across from Chronicle, and I was signing A.G. Subaraya, Master of Monsters. And uh, they were like, wow, we love your book, man. When are you going to put something together for us? You know, let's do some Godzilla. And, uh, that was like Ed Blair, the, the, the editor that came in that, that, you know, helped keep the magazine afloat and, and is still there, you know, batting away, putting out great issues. And, uh, and, uh, you know, everybody was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want it, we want you to come, come, come and do some Godzilla. And I said, well, you know, why don't we do a tribute issue to, you know, like sort of a sequel to 114, you know, that was the first issue of famous monsters that, uh, besides the very first issue in 1958, I believe it was, uh, that sold out immediately, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you would get the next issue of Famous Monsters. You got issue two, 115 after the big Japanese monsters issue in 114, and you would already, you'd open up to the back issue section, it would say, and it said sold out already. Yeah. You were like, oh my God, I'm glad I got my copy, you know? Yeah. That's the only issue of, uh, the original Famous Monsters that I have. I, obviously bought it retroactively but right well you know a lot of people did it's you know it was that's a whole nother story for another time i'd like to disseminate that that whole issue and and greg shoemaker of japanese fantasy film journal had some interesting things to tell me about how that thing came about but uh and uh but uh 
another story for another time. Um, so they said, yeah, let's do a Japanese monster special issue, you know, and that's how that, that's how that started. And that was the first issue of the new FM, uh, that not only, um, sold out, but sold out before it hit the newsstands. So all the orders had been filled through Diamond or whatever distributors they were going through. And all the com, you know, everybody who made their first orders, all the magazine stores, all the bookstores, all the retailers, you know, all the subscribers, it was, they couldn't fill any more orders after that. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was, it was sold out. That's awesome. Yeah. And they did two covers. They brought in Bob Eggleton, you know, and, uh, and everybody who's listening to this podcast, if you don't know who Bob Eggleton is, should go and have somebody spank you right now. Um, <laughs> I think they all know who Bob is. They better know who Bob is. Yeah, man. Because Bob's listening. <laughs> so I'm blowing smoke up his ass right now. No, but I love Bob. Bob, Bob and I were brought in, uh, you know, uh, to talk about this. And we had a conference call with the, uh, with the editor, Ed Blair and with, uh, the, the publisher, um, uh, Phil Kim and said, let's, you know, here's what do we want to do? You know, what do we, what do we want to have happen with this thing? And that's how it, uh, it started and it just went off like gangbusters. So it became an annual tradition. Yeah. So, so far we're at three issues, uh, right. the three kaiju issues. Right. Happy to have all three in my collection. Yes, sir. And uh, so we've got a new one coming out really soon. Yes. What can yes, you tell we, us we about have, the new issue? We have the 60th anniversary of Godzilla. So um, this one is going to, I can't spoil too much of it because they haven't re- released any you know press information yet on this. Uh, but suffice us to say that, you know, it's going to be, it's the all Godzilla issue. So you won't be, there won't be any uh, space taken away from Godzilla by, you know, uh, you know, by Ultraman or, uh, you know, Spectre Man or anybody like that. Um, it's all Godzilla all the time. Uh, we do have some special surprises that are going to be in there. And, um, I believe that will be out. Uh, I'm not sure if when it goes out to subscribers, but we will be selling the issue at the Big Wow Comics Fest a comic book convention in San Jose, California, 50 miles south of San Francisco, otherwise known as Silicon Valley, as part of the big famous monsters uh, celebration that they're doing in conjunction with uh, the Big Wow Comics Fest. Uh, they're bringing in some guests from Japan. There's other media guests, actors from horror films, and um, we'll be releasing that issue. And I'll be signing copies of uh, Eiji Tsuburaya at that convention as well. Very cool. I will be there as well. And we all know who's going to be there, right? Um, Besides you and me. <laughs> You're talking about Ken Satsuma, yeah. Bin Furuya, and Ben Daisuke, right? Right. Yes. I'm yes, looking so you- forward to that, man. That's going to be an awesome show. I wish I could yeah. go down for both days, but I'm only going to be there Saturday. Okay. When are, when are you pulling out? <laughs> when, are you, when, are you, when are you leaving? Are you just going to like do a hit and run? Yeah. You're just coming in on Saturday and then you're going to leave? Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, sorry, man. So a brand new Godzilla issue coming out. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I know Bob's done the cover uh, with a very special Mothra versus Godzilla painting. Oh, well, I, I also heard that there was going to be, you know, because he usually, you know, they do, uh, FM usually does like a couple different covers. Yeah, yeah. All of the Bob Eggleton covers for the Kaiju issue have generally been the one cover and usually with the alternate Monster World logo, which was another magazine that was done by Warren Publications originally that Forey Ackerman was in charge of. Um, and that was just kind of emphasizing, you know, uh, the world of monsters beyond, you know, the usual famous monsters of America. Gotcha. Um, 
But uh, from what I hear, what I understand is that there is more than one Bob Eggleton cover this time. Oh, that's terrible news for my wallet. <laughs> yeah. I can't really say how many. I'm not really sure myself. Well, I've I- heard things discussed. I'm not at liberty to say. But, you know, I heard that. So that- I can't confirm or deny anything. But I heard that there was originally talk about more than one cover. Very cool, man. Uh, I'm really looking forward to picking that up. And, uh, I, you know, save me a copy down at Big Wow, man, because I'll be there. Yeah, so if anybody is really interested in, like, pre-ordering this issue, you're going to have to look for issue 274. Go to FamousMonsters.com, and that website will come up, and it'll show you where you can order Famous Monsters. It's not up yet, but keep checking back, and uh, there's going to be, uh, at the event, a bunch of Bob Eagleton Godzilla posters, you know, based on the previous covers, are going to be for sale, t-shirts, hoodies. Um, all the great merchandise that's available on CaptainCompany.com, which is Famous Monsters uh, uh, merchandise site. You know, a lot of that stuff will be at the Big Wild Comics show as well. And you can also, if you can't make it out to California or to Northern California, uh, those you can buy. Uh, some of the stuff you can also purchase online at CaptainCompany.com. Very cool, man. Well, I think that pretty much does it. Dude, we're almost at an hour and a half of recording yeah, here. So. Jeez. Holy moly. <laughs> Thank you so much. August Ragoni. Yeah. Hey, if people want to find me. My blog is the good, the bad and Godzilla, which is augustragoni.blogspot.com. Also nominated for a Rondo award this year. I think something like the fifth consecutive year in a row. Uh, I usually get an honorable mention and that's pretty awesome anyway. And if you don't remember that for some reason or didn't write it down, it is on the Kaiju Cast website on the right hand side in the, uh, friends link or something like that. There's like yeah. a, a block of links. Yeah, man. Last thing I wanted to do is just, you know, give one more plug for your second edition of your book. AG Subarai, Master of Monsters, available from Chronicle Books. Uh, it's retailing for $29.95. Uh, but if you order from Amazon.com, I believe it's about $21 and change. So you want to check that out. Uh, it's the life story of A.G. Subaraya revolves around his movie career. Uh, 208 pages, over 200 uh, illustrations, behind-the-scenes photos, uh, artwork, production designs, and et cetera. And uh, it's a book that your home cannot be without. And 100% endorsed by the Kaiju cast. Woohoo! All right. Right on, man. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time, dude. Cheers. Thank you very much, man. And keep on keeping on. This is United Nations reporter Eric Carter with the news. The world is stunned to discover that prehistoric creatures exist in the 20th century. The armies have been alerted as we wait for more news from Japan. So not a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, make sure to see our last episode, number 108, for more info and news about the Godzilla movie and other cool stuff going on. Uh, so the only thing that I wanted to talk about really was Legendary Pictures has some really cool, um, well, I got, these aren't really contests, so I would just call them interactions, really cool fan interactions going on. The first is called Share Your Roar, and uh, the page for that says we want to hear your biggest loudest most ferocious godzilla roar upload your video here or submit via instagram youtube or vine with the hashtag godzilla roar to unlock more godzilla select videos will be added to our share your roar gallery so that's kind of cool i'll have the link in the show notes to anyone who wants to participate 
Uh, it'll go directly to their entry page. Now, the second thing they have going on is called the Global Godzilla Reaction Video, and here is what Gareth Edwards has to say about that. Hi, Godzilla fans. We finally wrapped our movie, and now it's your turn to get behind the camera. To celebrate Godzilla arriving in cities across the world, we'd like you to be part of an ultimate Godzilla montage. So we're asking all filmmakers to imagine what it'd be like if Godzilla showed up in your hometown. Your footage can be in any form you like, live action, animation, stop motion, or even a musical. Get as creative as you like. We'll check out your submissions and edit the best footage into a mini-movie to chart his global path of destruction before he arrives on May 16th. Good luck, and we can't wait to see what you come up with. Yeah, so there you go. Some cool things to do if you love Godzilla and you want to get in on, uh, I guess this is marketing stuff. Anyway, that pretty much does it for the news section. I know there's probably some other things I could talk about, but because of the uh, extra long interview, let's just move on to catastrophic events, starting with this weekend. Now, hopefully you're listening to this in time, because this weekend at the Hollywood Theater, which is actually going to be May 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, there are screenings for Godzilla, the original 1954, that has been digitally remastered, I guess you could say, and uh, distributed by the Rialto Pictures Group. Friday, the 2nd, the movie showtime is at 7 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, the movie showtime is at 3 p.m., so matinee. On Monday, you have a 9.30 p.m. showtime. Now, the reason that it's important, not I mean, in addition to just being Godzilla, the original Godzilla showing here in Portland, is that August Ragoni, the author of Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters, and of course the subject of this interview for this episode, he is going to be signing his book, and he and I are actually going to be presenting a cool presentation called The Genesis of Godzilla. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hanging out with August. And uh, yeah, please come down. Tickets are really not that expensive for the Hollywood Theater. And you'll get to meet the author of an awesome Godzilla. Well, actually, an awesome book about the special effects director for Godzilla movies. Uh, moving on. You heard him on the previous, previous episode. Mark Harmio talked about the event going on May 3rd in Los Angeles where they're showing Biollante twice in one day. And then there's going to be uh, miniature demonstrations. And then they're going to show Koichi Kawakita's God of Clay. All of that is happening in Los Angeles, of course. So not in Portland. But I'll have a link in the show notes to that event. Next up is, uh, I mentioned this in the last episode, and I think I might have mentioned it in the one before. On the 16th of May, the Roseway Theater here in Portland, Oregon, is showing Godzilla, but they're doing a special loud screening, and that is going to be awesome. So make sure you get your tickets. The tickets are actually available right now. It's a little weird. You have to click on the link, go to online ticketing, and then you have to choose the day, which will be the 16th, and it's 11 p.m. So just choose that, and you'll have your tickets all ready for the loud screening. The last event I want to talk about, because we talked about a bunch of events in the last episode, is uh, just once again talking about the Big Wow Comic Fest in San Jose, California, with Ken Pachiro Satsuma, Ben Furuya, and Ben Daisuke, all going to be there as special guests. I'm looking forward to checking them out and uh, hopefully interviewing them as well for the podcast. And that's pretty much going to do it. We're going to close out the show. There's really nothing else I want to talk about at this particular junction. So if you found the KaijuCast through iTunes or some other podcast directory, make sure you point your web browser to KaijuCast.com. 
and check out what we are about. We have the links to all of the episodes on the episode list, the entire list of Daikaiju discussion homework the schedule so you can see what's happening in the future. And uh, yeah, just links to our friends' websites, reviews that we've done. You can make sure I, that I will be actually writing a review for the new American Godzilla before it is released in theaters. That'll probably go online. Let's see. That'll go online probably uh, the morning of the 15th, if not the 14th sometime, because we get to go see our advanced screening on the 13th. I'm rambling. Let me just go ahead and finish up. So, uh, yeah, check out KaijuCast.com. Check us out on our social media networks if you are so inclined. We are going to be back a little bit later this month with another bonus episode. I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be yet, but, you know, you won't have to wait till the very end of May to hear something from us. And like I said, if you, uh, in the last episode, if you want to have your Daikaiju discussion homework turned in for the new American Godzilla movie, make sure to get that turned in before May 24th. Now, I think what we're going to do is we're going to close out the show with uh, what I consider to be a classic tale. It's a little bit weird to play it at the end of the show, just as the actual soundtrack piece from the uh, from the TV show. But I love the Ultra Q theme song so much that what we're going to do is we're going to play the live version of the Surf Coasters Ultra Q theme song. So there you go. That's it for this uh, for this episode. We'll see you next time, and hopefully I'll see you at the Hollywood Theater this weekend. Yamata. Thank you.